Fish On. This is the New York Angler Fishing Podcast, brought to you by nyangler.com, your secret spot online. Hosted by the man who introduced New Yorkers to the world of online fishing, Mr. George Skaka. Hello, everyone. My name is George Skaka. This is the New York Fishing Podcast, brought to you by your friends at NewYorkAngler.com. Today's episode, which is episode number 10, is going to center around the coronavirus. There's no sense in uh, talking about anything else because I don't think there's many of us thinking of anything else. Uh, We've never seen anything like it. Us New Yorkers are literally ground zero again. We find ourselves at ground zero as we did on 9-11. They say right now that three out of 10 New Yorkers are, well, downstate New Yorkers are testing positive. Um, So we need to do more. But I got to tell you, I, I just don't understand. Like I look at the list of essential businesses and I get it. We need essential business, you know, we need uh, essential businesses open. Um, but why can't a tackle shop be open? I don't get it. Um, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. But, uh, you know, you never have more than 10 people in there at any given time. Well, most cases anyway. And if you do, so limit the number outside. Just keep the social distancing. But I think we need to get more people out on the water and out on their own in their solitude and let them forget about uh, what's going on just for a little while. I mean, I wish I could do this here um, and act like, uh, the coronavirus doesn't even exist and everything is great, and, but it's not. Uh, but at the same time, I'm always looking uh, for a reason to or a way to, you know, relieve some of our stress. We all have cabin fever. We're all headed into, which is the least of our problems. I get it. Uh, but you know what? I hit a local lake that was open. I spent three hours there. My legs were pretty numb by the time I got done. I did catch a couple of fish, missed a couple of fish. Um, But it was good to be out and be about. But I got to be honest with you, the whole time I was there, I still thought of the virus. I, uh, I guess maybe I'm too consumed with it. But I do think that uh, tackle shops should be open so that they can provide the things that the fishermen need to get out. And in most cases, fishermen don't want to be next to fishermen. I know I don't. I know if a boat pulls next to me, I move. So if I'm fishing in a lake and somebody comes near me, I'm out of there. And nine out of 10 fishermen do the same thing. So I don't know. I think it's time uh, that we start looking at other things and other ways. And I know it's soon, but let's get people outdoors. I think it's, I mean, keep them apart. I saw a picture yesterday of, uh, of Central Park and there was like, I don't know, hundreds of people kind of hanging out together. It looked a little dumb to me. 
Um, but, you know, get your rod, get your reel, go hit your secret little spot that nobody ever sees you. That's where I was, talked in a little tree, and I can't tell you how many people ran by me, never knew I was standing there in the water. So, but getting back to essential businesses, so I get it, you know, uh, fishing is not an essential business. I think there's something in New Jersey going on where commercial fishing is an essential business. And I think if you read between the lines or technically, I think commercial fishing is uh, an essential business here also as it provides food. Well, you know, the same could be said for the, for the average Joe that wants to jump in his boat, run out, catch a couple of fish and bring them home and eat them. I can remember a day where people would chip in and send, uh, you know, one of their locals, one of their Sharpies out to load up on bluefish for everybody. And they would help pay for the guy. So, I mean, right now, of all times, the cleanest thing you probably could eat is something that can't, comes right out of that saltwater fresh. So I believe we should be doing more. Am I always looking out for the recreational angler? Yes. And the industry? Yes. Um, I think a lot of people do. But it, truthfully, when you look at the whole thing, they should be encouraging us. There should be no license fee right now. There should be, I mean, there's got to be restrictions, but let anyone fish that can fish, make sure they're within the bag limits and make sure that they're keeping their social distance, the new uh, phrase that we're going to hear for the rest of our lives. So like it or not, folks, we are in for tougher times uh, as fishermen, I do believe we could get out and, uh, you know, clear our brains a little bit here and there. And because I tell you, I was thinking about the virus while I was fishing, but every time I hooked up or felt a little tug, I forgot about everything except for fighting that fish. So that's basically um, my open here for today. I want to make this, I don't want to make this all doom and gloom because it isn't doom and gloom. It is something our nation and all Americans have never faced anything like this in history. And I have faith in our system, in our leaders and in our country that we will turn this around and get things back to normal just in time for us to catch some fish. So that's what I'm hoping for. Um, I have a few guests here today. Actually, I have a great piece um, with the owner of Captain's Tables Charters, uh, Captain Mike Beatty out in... He fishes out in Orient. Unfortunately, there was some kind of a technical difficulty, and I missed about the first five minutes, uh, which is the opening. Let me just put it to you this way. Um, the LEP, people at a leprechaun here on our website, very well-known, greatest guy ever, um, and one of the better fishermen around, uh, swears by him says he is the best black fisherman there is. And when you listen to this wonderful 
uh, interview, you're going to hear there's there's a lot there. Listen, try to read between the lines. There's just so much there that, you know, like I'd listen to it again and I'm like, wow, there's really a lot here. So um, hopefully we can take your mind off of these crazy times, uh, science fiction like movie uh, setting that we're in right now and just kick back, listen uh to this knowledgeable captain who has many years on the water. And I will follow this up again with a, another episode, hopefully with a little bit more on Blackfish. But before um, we go jump right to the um, interview, I would like to mention that I saw a copy today of the tags that are needed for Blackfish this year. And I tell you what, it's pretty promising. So if you didn't report any fish last year, sorry, you get no tags. If you report just a few fish, um, you've got... Like, I think you apply and then they send you like 50 tags. And then when you use those, you apply again and you get more. So they are making this process for real and they're making this process not simple. But I do want to say it still has yet to address the one issue that we need to get a hold of. But I think now we have real good reason to do it. So now we know who gets X amount of tags. We should kind of figure out how many pots that person is allowed to have with those tags. So I'm just assuming they're being used for pots, not hook and line. But but let's say for the pot fishery. So I think it's time we do like we did back in the days when they were actually lobster in the Long Island Sound. And we tag each and every pot and number and let's keep a record of who's catching what and who has how many pots. If you're allowed 25 fish a day, why would you need, I don't know, 100? Do you need 100 pots for 25 fish? Honestly, I don't know. But I got to tell you, it seems like a little bit of overkill. So why don't we give out pot permits, the same in, you know, relation to the number of tags that we give out. I think it's time, New York, please consider regulating the pot fishery here in New York. Yes, blackfish are coming back, but they could come back a lot stronger. And I appreciate everything that you folks are doing. Um, I got to give it to DEC and actually to ASMFC with strong pushback. They still pushed through the tagging system, which will undoubtedly help our tog fishery. Well, that's it for me for now. I'm going to now cut straight to the interview with Captain Mike Beatty from the Captain's Table Charters 
out on the North Fork. Talk about in just a minute, but the wind, uh, you know, wind speeds mean a lot because uh, some of the spots that we fish are kind of open and they're not really well protected. And then the other places that we'll fish will actually be up pretty tight to shore, whether it's on the Long Island Sound, on Long Island side of the Sound, or over on the Connecticut side of the Sound, or even sometimes out by Fisher's Island. There are places that we just talked about where you can hide from a strong wind. So I, ideally, I'd prefer to have a wind out of a westerly quarter. You know, mm-hmm. due west, I mean, not due west, but southwest and northwest uh, are good winds for us because we can tuck away out of the wind if it's, if it's a little bit strong. But if we get a wind, wind less than 15 knots, we can fish almost anywhere that we'd like. But the other thing that really governs, you know, part of that decision is what's the tide going to be? Um, so I was going to give you a little bit of an update on tides and, and just to see whether or not people are, are really aware of it. Some of the stuff might be basic and some of the stuff may be a little bit more uh, you know, detail-oriented that folks don't realize. Um, you know, you know, One of the things that I find interesting is that even though many of us can go out and we can have every once in a while a day where the fish are just biting their heads off all day long, that's usually not the case. Right. Most times fish are eaten on a specific stage of the tide and they're not eating all day long. So you have to know what stages of the tide or what locations you're going to fish at that will be allowing you to fish properly in order to be able to catch those fish. So um, there's another issue that people aren't always aware of, but there's a difference really between tides and currents. You know, tides are the vertical movement of your water going up and down, where currents are the flow in and out. And just because you look at a tide table and tells you to say the high tide is at 12 o'clock noon, that doesn't mean that the current is still flowing either in as on an incoming tide or out on an outgoing tide. That current flow can continue sometimes an hour, even a little bit more than that past the published time of the high tide or the low tide. So you got to right. be aware of that stuff because very often a moving tide uh, in some species is what's going to you know, cause some fish to eat a little bit better. And also in certain spots that we fish, you want to fish a little bit closer to the slack water period because it's just even not possible to fish unless you want to use two pounds of weight to get down to the bottom. Right. So if we're talking about black fishing, for example, uh, a lot of the really nice spots that we like to fish out in the open part of the sound, some of them close down by Fisher's Island and close to the race, you know, the water that runs through the race is incredibly fast, incredibly fast. Yeah, I fish there. If you're talking about... I'm sure you have. So if you're talking about a big moon period, like a full moon or a new moon, on the ebb tide, the tide can run as fast as five knots, five and a half knots. There's no possible way you can fish effectively in that kind of tide. So what we try to do is when we want to fish those open water spots, I try to plan the uh, the time that we're going to fish those areas right around the slack water. And depending upon the phase of the moon, because moon phases are what often you know, determine how much current we're going to have, uh, you've got between an hour, an hour and a half, maybe two hours max, when you can fish some of those spots right back in the center where the tide's running very, very hard and be able to get away with eight and ten ounce sinkers. So that's a real critical thing to look at is, you know, know when your slack water periods are, not just the high tide. And that's, you know, there's a lot of different sources you can go to, George, in order to get tidal information. There's stuff online, there's stuff in magazines. But there's something that I think you find every good captain has, and you should have it in your possession. You buy a new copy every year, and that's the Eldridge Tide Pilot book. Oh, yeah. That book has got best and most accurate information out of all the years I've been fishing. I, I compare what it says in Eldridge versus what I see in other printed tide tables. Eldridge is on the money every single time. 
every time. Yeah. And it tells you when the slack water periods are. It also tells you when the maximum speed of the tide is going to run, too, so you can avoid those being in the outside spots. But even those open and unprotected spots, it's very, very hard to fish. It's not even that the fish won't bite sometimes to a strong running tide, but when your line starts scoping out more than 45 degrees away from the boat, you're using 16 or 18 ounces of lead, it's really hard to feel that pickup of a uh, you know, light pickup of a blackfish can sometimes. Right. You when you're and do you find they're chewing tide. on those strong tides? They do chew on those strong tides. It's true. But the problem, as I said, is even with the modern tackle that we use today, even with braided line, with super sensitive, you know, composite type rods, you know, some of these carbon fiber blank rods, which I love, it still gets to be very, very difficult. And, and frankly, for me, and I think a lot of my passengers, it's not as enjoyable. So the next thing I was going to mention about tides and whether it's black fishing or even some of the other bottom species we go for is when that tide starts really cranking hard, when you're outside of that window of an hour and a half to maybe two hours, you sometimes even get two and a half on a core phase of the moon. But when you're outside of that window, you got to find a spot that doesn't have such a strong tidal flow to be able to fish effectively. Right. I kind of call it hiding from the tide, right? That's, yeah. I, I, like, I like to have a bunch of spots in my logbook that shows me where I can hide from the tide. A lot of times those are in tighter to the islands, in tighter to the, to, uh, the shore, where you're not going to have quite as strong or ducking behind a, a piece of geography, behind an island, uh, or in a cove, you know, Jig fishing for blackfish has gotten to be so popular. It's like almost all of my customers ask me, can we do some of that? And a right. lot of times we can. It may only be around that flat water period in certain locations, but there are some locations that I have where you can actually fish the entire tide, sometimes even during a big moon period where you're not going to get blown out by that tide and still fish effectively with only a one and a half ounce and maybe maximum a two ounce jig. Right. So that's, you know, again, one of those, those things that you really need to learn to experience and, and trial and error is finding some of these spots where you can hide from a really strong screaming tide and save the, the slack water period for when you can fish out in the deeper water and some of the big drops, you know, in, in the areas where the tide is just racing to allow yourself to fish effectively and still catch well. Right, right. So, I mean, really, when you look at it, you're covering, you know, all the bases. So you're looking at everything. You're looking at moon. You're yep. looking at yes. uh, current, which you judge by the moon. Um, you're looking yes. at current time. You're looking at, you know, wind direction, um, yes. So, and then you have to think about where you might talk. So you have to put all right. these things in. And so the 90% that aren't catching, and look, I don't blame them, you know, um, because well, they're not into it like us. Doing. But, um, yeah. you know, they need to understand that all of these things do have to be taken into account. And, and the oh. other issue is actually finding what you want to fish on when? Because, you know, you may have perfect conditions in three or four different spots, yet still have a top spot, so so to speak. Yeah. So um, yeah, that's true. And, and, and again, the wind direction and, and speed makes a big difference. So, for example, if we get breezes blowing out of the south or the southwest, uh, we're going to have a lot more protection on the Long Island side of the town. And we can tuck behind Plum Island and Mulford Point or Orient Point and find nice drops there that aren't going to have us get beat up and allow us to position the boat properly. Whereas when we start getting winds blowing from the north and the northwest, uh, you know, moving over to the Connecticut side of the Long Island Sound obviously affords you the same kind of protection and allows you to fish comfortably and effectively on a number of different drops. 
So and, the, and then the same thing with the east. You know, if one blow, even one bloom blows out of the east, you know, there are a lot of great crops on the, on the west side of Fisher's Island that you'll see a fleet of boats working all the time, both from North Fork and from Connecticut ports that are all, you know, tucking in behind the uh, island there to get out of an east wind. So knowing the direction and the wind, the anticipated speed will often give it, will often govern what general areas that we're going to fish on a given day. Yeah. Yeah, I fished with a, a guy out of uh, Shelter Island, and that's exactly where we were fishing. And, you know, we had a great time. And a couple of guys were actually fishing jigs. I don't know what it is. Uh, I consider myself a pretty good black fisherman, right, <laughs> with a yep. conventional rig. But you give me yep. one of those jigs, and I am just swinging a miss. I, I cannot see <laughs> I can't set them. I, I, I don't get it. Um, what tackle do you find these uh, jiggers are using? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, personally, I, I've always, everything I've read about uh, has been, you know, geared towards spinning tackle. And uh, usually people are using 15 to 20 pound class spinning rods, about a 20 pound class braided line. You definitely need braided line because you're working with very, very light jigs and uh, you need to be able to get that jig dropping to the bottom as quickly as possible. So it has to be, you know, a, a nice thin braided line to be able to give you that, uh, the less, less water resistance so the jig will drop to the bottom quickly and also the ability to, you know, feel the bite and set up on the fish fairly quickly. Um, generally 3,000 class, if you need to, you can get up to 4,000 class uh, reels on the spinning reels. Uh, actually, last fall, uh, on a trip I made with Pete, we, we, I, I pulled an 11-pound, 8-ounce blackfish out of a 15-foot spot on the Connecticut side using that, uh, that same tackle. It's a 3,000 class spinning rod, uh, a spinning reel, I should say, and about a 15 to 20-pound class rod. That's so nice. uh, that That's... seems to be what most people like to do. I mean, I see some guys that actually will do the same thing with very, very light rods, like almost their fluke jigging rods, too. I think the problem sometimes with some of the conventional reels is that the reel, the spool doesn't revolve fast enough. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a little bit of, you know, break on that, and you have to adjust the break way down. I mean, you know, Pete is a, is, a, is a real master, and he does all kinds of customizations and stuff, and some of the reels that he fishes with, uh, you can't buy off the shelf. And he's got some conventional reels that will drop the line down almost as fast as a spinning reel. But if you're just getting into this thing, I would I would certainly recommend going with the spinning tackle. I mean, you have to be honest. You're going to lose a certain percentage of really big fish on a spinning rod because you just can't stop them. And, you know, a, a six or an eight-pound blackfish is hard enough to stop on conventional tackle. <laughs> Think about how yeah, much but you know what? you're going to have with spinning. I really enjoy that. You know, that's I've always yeah, been like a is. light tackle guy, like giving the fish a chance. And um, But I don't know what it is. I'm you know, and I'm using, like you say, I'm using the same stuff the guy's right next to me, catching fish, and I'm always like a little late on this jig. I just can't figure it out. Yeah, I, you know, it's it's interesting. Look, the, the, the reality is, George, that, you know, on, on every given day, and even sometimes from one tide to the next, fish may change the way in which they're biting and eating, you know, the baits. Uh, and there are times when you can leave the jig down and you can literally wait for the fish to pick up the rig, the rig and the jig and swim away. And you can actually feel and sense them swimming away. And that's usually when they've got it deep enough in the mouth for you to strike and be sure you're going to get a good solid set every time. But I can also tell you, I've been out on days jigging where the fish are just pecking at it really, really lightly. And you got to swing almost immediately or you come up empty every time. Yes. Yeah, so I'm, I can't yeah. say that there's a hard and fast rule. 
But if I was going out for the day, I wasn't sure, you know, what the nature of the bite was going to be. I would start off giving them a little more time, seeing if I can get them to pick up the jig and swim away with it. Because I suspect what's going on with this style of black fishing is that the rig is so light that the fish is just not feeling anything. You know, when we fish them with take 10, 12 ounce pieces of lead and they're taking a bite on that, you know, they're, they're feeling something substantial pulling against them, so it makes them wary. But when they're picking up that jig, it's so light. I think they're swallowing it a lot of the time. So that's where you want to give them a little bit more time, let them actually move off a little bit. You know, you have to have that really light feel, a little bit of tension in the line to feel whether or not he's picking it up and moving it. And then uh, if, he, if he seems to be swimming off with it, that's when you want to swing away. But I, I, I see it happen both ways. I really do. It's, uh, it, it, again, it's part of the challenge of black fishing, right? I mean, that's why people love black fishing so much because it is challenging to hook them no matter what style of tackle you use. And they really can be a very, very wary, you know, type of fish to catch. But, and, you know, the, the reward is great when you catch a big one. Yeah. It's like nothing else. Uh, there was nothing like it. I mean, I'm sure you talk, You can talk about the old days, but I remember fishing uh, the West Sound with a friend of mine. Uh, I would drive out there. We'd be in a tin boat, you know, with a 10-horsepower kicker. Yeah. We'd run outside yeah. of Pea Island. And I it literally, it wasn't a trip. We didn't have like an eight-pound fish. Every, every trip in 12 foot of water and... Uh, you know, you go there today, there's, there's hardly anything. There's still 50 boats, but, um, you know, it, it has yeah, changed and you do need to be better. I do believe yeah. you guys at North Fork have, uh, do have a huge advantage to a guy like myself in Smithtown Bay. Yes, I have the reef and, and we catch good fish on the reef, but it's not, you know, it's a quick pick. You catch, you catch a fish and then it's over. So, um, yeah, no, it's true. We, we're really blessed on the North Fork. We have so much in the way of rocky terrain and areas that we can address uh, and a lot of different options. So that means that, you know, yeah, there are spots that are well-known or popular and they do get pounded a lot. And sometimes after, you know, you get past October into November, some of the very well-known spots, you know, start to thin out with the number of keepers and you'll still see a lot of fish, but too many shorts. But, you know, the fact that we have so much in the way of rocky debris that's been, you know, deposited through the ice ages that uh, gave us, you know, so much of the terrain that we have on the North Fork, you can almost always find a piece that's not hit that hard. A lot of shallow pieces, too, when we talk about jig fishing. Let's face it, they're so small. Like I said, there's a couple of spots I fished that are 10, 12 feet deep, 8 feet deep, really big rocks. Party boats can't get in there. Even big charter boats can't get in there. So you got spots there that get a lot less pressure, and that's what helps, you know, to keep the bite strong. Um, you know, when we're talking about jigs, too, in terms of my own personal opinion, usually I don't go any deeper than 40 feet. I find that if you're deeper than 40 feet, it's pretty hard to get, you know, a jig down and get the feel that you really want with the, with the light tackle. So I try to keep the spots a lot shallower than that. And as I say, and, and as you read, you know, from articles and you know, a lot of other folks' experience, too, you can find them as, as shallow as, as, as seven or eight feet. And it's interesting, too, George, that I find, even though a lot of guys talk about the shallow bite only being early in the season, I don't necessarily find that to be true. I pull my size fish right up through almost Thanksgiving, sometimes in those 12 and 15 foot drops. So, uh, you know, if you've got spots that, again, don't get a lot of pressure, then I would work on them. So, so when we're talking about spots, you know, one of the things that's important to consider is that uh, you, you need to have your sonar on it and be watching it all the time. 
and watching for little rocky outcroppings and a lot of places that look like they're fishy with those big changes, you know, in the depth. And you see, you know, large right. pieces of debris and stuff. So wrecks are one thing. But, you know, finding little patches of rocks and little boulder fields and all, those are the types of things that, you know, may not get, you know, the daily you know, type of pressure that some of the other well-known spots do. And that's what increases your opportunities to really do well. Um, right. So I, I would highly recommend, you know, you got to build your repertoire spots. And it also means, you know, sometimes spending a little bit of each day, you know, maybe half an hour, an hour prospecting, trying something that you've never tried before. You know, it's the only way you build new spots and then you find things that other people aren't working. Yeah, you know, that's, uh, I hear that over and over again, you know. And I've seen it work, you know, I've done it myself, like I've hit, you know. Yep seen things and hit it and come back and, you know, found fish on it. Um, it was yeah. fluke was a blackfish, but, uh, yeah. yeah um, but it's, it, it's all part of the game is, is learning that kind of stuff. And, you know, you were asking right. me, I think a little bit earlier about anchoring and like, uh, I, I do not double anchor, uh, mainly because it's a little bit hard to do, you know, by myself on, on a 28 footer. Uh, so what I would suggest in terms of that kind of stuff is single anchoring is just fine, but if you're going to single anchor, then you probably want to be walking over a little bit larger piece of structure. Right. You know, if you've got a really tiny little spot where the wind and the current may blow you on and off of that spot, it's not going to be nearly as effective as if you can put your boat over a piece that's large enough so that if you do have a little bit of swing, you can actually still catch fish throughout you know the entire you know, scope of the, of the swing of your anchor line. So yeah. uh, I, I would encourage the guys that are out there single anchoring to definitely, you know, look for slightly larger pieces that have a lot of rock strewn over a big area. Even still, you know, blackfish are very, very, you know, structure oriented and they like to stay extremely tight to the spots. So that means that sometimes if you've got a breezy day and you got your boat position correctly and you're anchored on a piece and you're starting to catch fish and all of a sudden the wind comes up and pushes a little bit to the side and you move off, don't waste time. If you can't get back on a piece, raise the anchor and, and re-anchor again. Yeah, that's it's so true. Yeah. Paid, yeah. Paid to me just by spending that time. I mean, you know, yeah, you're investing a little bit of time in, in, in retrieving the road again and all. I mean, I'm fortunate in that I got a windlass and it makes it a little bit easier for me. But the reality is that, you know, I'd still rather invest the time to get properly positioned over a piece again to start catching than just, you know, hope that the wind's going to blow me back in the right direction for a few minutes and we maybe take one fish and then it's it for another 10 minutes. Right, so right. Uh, yeah, most people won't, you know, most people are going to wait to get there, you know. I mean, if you're in a small yeah. enough boat, you, you know, chuck at that second anchor, I always say. And, you know, yep. do what, whatever it is you have to do to get on the piece and, and stay on it. So let me ask you this. With, um, so, you know, green crab, of course, that's what everybody's using. Do you guys use Asian out there? And are they out there? Like they're in the West Sound. There's like freaking Asian crabs everywhere. You know what? I, I don't harvest my own crabs. If you want to buy Asians, yeah, you know, Wego usually has a pretty good supply of, of bait, and I use Steve all the time for most of my bait needs. Uh, it's something like Asians, you may have to call ahead and ask him to make sure he's got them in stock, but he will get them for you if you want. Same thing with white crabs. You know, greens are the, are the old standby, and they still work well. And, and I, I'd say I probably fish with green crabs more than, than 80, 85% of the time. But there are those days when the fish can be picky, and, you know, you'll, you'll see one guy will be fishing with greens, and another guy next to him fishing with whites, and the guy with the whites is killing him. Yeah, I've seen that. Only getting a, you know, a bite here and there. 
So, you know, having a mix just like with any other species, you know, having a couple of different baits to choose from uh, can also increase your odds. I, I don't see fiddlers doing as much as they used to. Uh, gosh, when I was a kid, you, you know, you never went out without fiddlers in the distance right. and crabs. And uh, nowadays, I don't see that as they seem to catch more small fish, which kind of puzzles me because the Asians are not big. So I don't yeah. know why the Asians are doing so well nowadays. I mean, maybe it's just a fad. But uh, it is true that there are some days that fish will prefer, you know, a different uh, type of crab, different species of crab. And, and while we're talking about baits as well, you know, like everything else, you want to mix up the presentation, especially when you work with the you know, larger crabs like greens and whites. Sometimes you want small whole greens. Sometimes you want to leave the legs on. Sometimes you want to take the legs off. Sometimes you leave the shells on. Sometimes you want to take the shells off. But all of those types of variations will sometimes get, you know, a slow and, 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 and picky bite turning into a really hot bite. So it really pays to experiment and try different presentations with your bait as well, because that will often mean a difference between, you know, catching just a few and, and really putting together a serious yeah. catch. Yeah, that's kind of how I attack it. Like the first one I'll put down, I'll have no legs and no shell, you know, see what happens. And yep. yeah, yeah, there's those days where, boy, they want the whole thing, you know. Yeah. Those yeah, are the great. Those are the great days. The oh yeah, yeah there, there are days like that too. There are days where you can't do anything wrong. But by yeah. and large, you know, <laughs> black fishing does require a lot of effort. You know, you got to really be on your game. Again, you got to be on the right place, the right time, right stage of the current. Uh, and, uh, and, and in many cases, we can say hide from the tide on the really strong stages and then out into the open spots when, you know, it starts to back off a little bit. Right. Something so, else I wanted to mention in relation to tides just briefly, and uh, that's something that I don't know that a lot of guys know. This is even more important in bass fishing than, than it is in black fishing, but it can be there too. I think everybody knows that there are two tide cycles every day, right? You've got two high tides and two low tides. But did you know that actually one of the two high tides and one of the two low tides actually runs at a faster speed? They don't run at the same velocity. And that's why the Eldridge is such an important book, because the Eldridge not only tells you when the slack water periods are and the high and low tides, but it also tells you which one of the tides on any given day is going to run faster and which one's going to be a little bit slower. It's a very, very key piece of information that many people overlook. Yeah. Yeah, that's that really is a good tip. I mean, sadly, people are pretty lazy, but what's helping uh, nowadays are all these new apps that are gathering all the data. Um, You know, I mean, they're they're starting to take hold and maybe people will get it. I don't know. I feel like it's it's still going to be the same thing. They're going to have we've always had the data. And we never really look at right. it. So what's the difference? We're going to have the data again, and we're still not going to look yeah, at it. Yeah, if you don't use it, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. information you don't use it, you might as well put it in the trash can. I mean, it really you know, has to be, you know, you got to put all of these pieces of the puzzle together in order to really make a difference, you know. And, and that's, again, why, you know, you always talk about, the, you know, the 10% of the guys catching 90% of the fish, because those 10% of the guys are looking at all of these little fine details and putting them all together to try to make one comprehensive game plan when it comes to going out there and trying to target a given species. You know, I always say that if you don't have a game plan with a plan B and a plan C ready before you leave the dock, you're just not going to be successful and you kind of have to stick to it, you know, and if it doesn't work, you try and tweak it or like you say, you start looking around for for other things at other times, but you need to have that plan uh, to leave the dock and say, 
yeah, well, I'm not sure. I heard about this rock and I, you know, I've had something here or there. It's, I mean, I'm not saying not going to catch, you know, because it could just be one of those days, but you need to have that plan. And, uh, Oh, you know, no, I, I appreciate mean, all those tips. Yeah. No, sure. Now, let me give you one more perfect example of that. Last uh, November, uh, I usually run until Thanksgiving weekend. That's the uh, last set of charter trips that we run. And uh, Tuesday before Thanksgiving, Pete and I went out and we did a recreational trip. And it was blowing eh, pretty good out of the north, northwest, but uh, still re- you know, reasonable enough to fish safely up by Fisher's Island. And uh, we, it was a full moon, so we didn't have a very long window. And we get on a couple of places that I like out in the open spots around Slackwater. And we were catching with pretty good regularity, but a lot of shorts, not very many keepers, a couple here and there. And uh, so I said, all right, tide's on a crank. We start moving into the inshore spots. And the inshore spots were actually almost dead. And I was really surprised. We weren't catching much at all. And we're getting close to 12 noon. And we're thinking, eh, you know, should we call it a day? And I said, you know what, Pete? There's one more spot that I haven't hit in a number of years right now. And I know it's relatively protected from, you know, a real strong current flow. Let's give that one a shot. So about 1230 in the afternoon, we anchor up on this piece I haven't fished in probably four or five years. And sure enough, the fish were in there as thick as could be. And we just slammed and pulled the limit within less than an hour. Wow. Fish up about six and a half, seven pounds. And, uh, you know, we went home with huge smiles on our faces. So having a backup plan, having a couple of extra spots in your back pocket, knowing what time and stage of the tide you can fish them, you know, to make it work effectively for you is uh, often the difference between success and failure. You know, in most cases, like we say, they only fish, sometimes the fish only feed for an hour or so, an hour and a half at any given point of the day. So all you need is that one good hour. One good hour and that can can make or break your day. And, you know, I mean, this all comes back to how often we say you have to put in your time, right? So you got to get out there, you got to put in your time, and then you got to keep records. And then, you know, you say, hmm, you know, they seem they bit better on this tide and we had that wind, you know, and then eventually yeah. you recognize the pattern. Um, you yeah, know, there's record keeping is crucial. Absolutely. I mean, I have obviously like 40 years worth of records and, and you look them over and you know, what are you doing on winter days like this? <laughs> if you're yeah. not working or even if you're working on a weekend, once you cleaned up your tackle and refurbished it, and got it all ready to go again, you know, it's still a lot of downtime. So that's when you start looking back at the records and you start trying to put together the patterns that are going to be most successful. So what do you, uh, what do you do with your tackle? to make sure that everything's ready for spring, because I know, you know, I guarantee you half of the people just don't do anything. So, and they wait for it to break and there's, you know, slinky looking line on their reel. It's been on there for three years. So sure. No, it's true. You know, and sadly, you know, Murphy's law always comes into play. It breaks when you got that trophy fish on the end of the line. So you don't want to have that happen. No, it's not. I mean, I'm pretty fastidious about my tackle. Not as, crazy as Peter is. He's unbelievable. He'll disassemble and, 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 and clean and regrease his reels a couple of times a season. I only do it once a season, but I try really hard to make sure that I keep the stuff in top shape throughout the season. So right, when right. I, you know, when we talk about winter time, when we're just, you know, shutting down for the end of the year, yeah, all the reels get, you know, removed from the rods. They get totally disassembled. They get clean. They get regreased. If there are any, you know, you know, parts that are starting to fail, then they get replaced right away because they can't afford that failure. That's on the water. So, you know, right. all of that stuff is done in the wintertime. Uh, line, I usually try to change 
Ray, I, I'll go two seasons with, uh, or a lot of guys will reverse it, right? They'll, they'll take all the line right. off the reel and, and turn it around, and they'll start with a fresh line that's on the bottom of the spool again. So you can nurse maybe a third season out of it, but I won't go more than three seasons with any you know, any spool off the line. So that could change fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that I still use some mono in some cases, not for black fishing, but you know, for, for bass and stuff with customers, just because when we're three-way you know, drifting in the gut and race, you know, the tangle can be monumental with people that are not experienced. I can't spend half the day untangling their lines. So you just make tangles out with mono. But uh, so, yeah, it, it's just the nature of the business, George. You know, sometimes you do have to figure that. Yeah, I'm looking to get yeah, my customers back I get time. You want to catch them the most that. fish, period, you know. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So absolutely. that's so what it's all about. Get this simple, clean, regreased. My rods, I'll take the rods down, and probably I think I still in about two weeks, I'm going to have about a 50-degree day on a Sunday or so, and I'm going to pull all the rods out, stick them on the front porch, pull the hose out, and I'll, I'll wash them all down with soap and water. I'll scrub the uh, butts, you know, whether they're hypolons or, or corks or whatever, with, with a good, strong, you know, stiff scrub brush with... Uh, you know, with uh, a little bit of soap and water, and then they get waxed. You know, they, they, and if there's any, you know, any any uh, like coarse, uh, I want to say, uh, you know, rust or stuff. Not really many much rust, but you know, good quality tackle shouldn't rust. The guys should be, you know, good basically as long as you keep them clean for a lifetime. But right. uh, I have some, you know, less expensive off the shelf rods that I leave on board. We'll see. See, most of my tackle comes off. But there are about a half a dozen outfits so that I do leave on board down below in the cabin. And because they are exposed to the salt atmosphere and they're less expensive, some of those guys get a little pitted and stuff. So yeah, you, you rub them up with some vinegar. You let it sit for about an hour or so with some cotton balls on it. And then you wash it off and, and most of that stuff goes away. So you right. clean up the guides pretty nicely. Obviously, you want to make sure that there are no breaks or cuts or nicks in, in your guides. You know, with all the Fuji guides and stuff, that stuff does crack. And, and once it does, it can you know create nicks in your lines. So you can take cotton swabs and put them in each one of the guides and make sure that it's moving through smoothly and it's not, you know, pulling any of the cotton off of the tip so that you know that you've got nice, clean running guides. Those are things that are really important to watch out for. Wherever possible, you know, after every trip, obviously, we do rinse off the tackle with fresh water. Uh, you can use a heavy pressure on rods and stuff, but you want to use light pressure on reels with the, with the hose. But if you've got salt and debris that's on the outside of the reels, and you can blast them, you're going to just force that salt right inside the reels. Right. A light wash, you know, with fresh water on the reels, a little heavier on the rods. And then even though, and I may not be, you know, re, re- cleaning them all the time, I will wipe them down with some WD-40 after every single trip. Just mm-hmm. keep a little bit of a barrier there so we don't get uh, any kind of debris inside the reel. And That's it's rare amazing. that I have a failure mid-season. It's pretty rare that I get a failure mid-season with right. that kind of regimen. You know, again, there's all different levels of participation and people, you know, get crazy and they'll go shit terrible part a couple times a year, three times a year. I'm too busy fishing. <laughs> I have to admit, it's not me, but I definitely do it over the winter and, you know, I keep everything clean, as clean as possible. But, you know, I'm the first one to admit, you know, I'm the, I, I don't do the right thing. So I could do better. Yeah, I could do a lot worse, yeah, but yeah, I could, we could do, better. do a little better. But, uh, but yeah. that, that's the nature of, uh, of the 
support it. It, it, it. There is a lot of effort involved, but you know, if you, again, you put your time in, you, you experiment a little bit, you look for different spots, you learn what's going on with tides and currents, you learn what's going on with baits and presentations and rigs. And you know, the best thing that I always tell people is, is to go on a charter with somebody that's experienced. It, it's an education that you can't buy anywhere. You can read every article in the world on the internet. You can listen to podcasts like this and get some snippets, but actually getting the tutelage right there on the water with somebody that knows what they're doing, that, that'll advance your, your, your skills so much faster. So and it's true. I, I have people come with me right. all different right. levels of experience. I have you know complete novices. I got families, which are great times. You know, the kids have a wonderful time in the base catching porgies one after another. And I get the experience. I got other charter captains and party boat captains that sometimes fish with me too. Uh, so, you know, and I go with them because we can all learn from one another. We can all learn from one another. If you find somebody that does this, you know, full time, has been doing it for for decades, they got their own little tricks and tips. And when you get to go out and fish from side by side, that's when the learning really starts. That's really the only time we can sit here and explain it. We could write it. We could show pictures. You got to get out. Right. You got to do it. You got to put in your time. And as long as you enjoy it enough to sit through like a podcast, this type of thing, and uh, to go out and join all these social media sites and be interested in fishing, um, you might as well learn how to do it right and keep your stuff right. I mean, uh, oh, and, and salt water, you know, most of, most of the fishing you see on TV, right? It's all freshwater stuff. You can find salt water, but it's still, it's 75% of the fishing market is freshwater. Yeah, so I agree. That's what you're going to see. So, you know, those guys, those reels never see salt. Um, but we need to. Take, <laughs> no, you're right. You know, we need to take care of our stuff a little bit better. So. Uh, oh yeah, no. The salt environment is extremely corrosive. So if you don't pay attention to it, as I said, with Murphy's law, it's always going to fail any of the worst possible time. And that's you know, you spent enough time and enough money, enough effort to try to catch that one big fish. You don't want to lose them because of a tackle failure. It's, it's such an easy thing to make sure that you, you stay on top of. As long as you're a little bit diligent, you know, those things don't, won't have to happen to you. So, and as I was saying before, too, about, you know, learning from other guys and stuff. When we were talking earlier about, you know, when do you strike when you're jig fishing for, for blackfish and all, standing side by side next to somebody that really knows what they're doing and watching how they, you know, make the technique work for them is worth much, much more than any article that you could read. I see it all the time, too, you know, in, in, when it comes to striped bass fishing. You know, the way we striped bass fish, you know, in the race and in, in plum gut with three-way tackle and, and, and dragging the bucktail, it's very, very different from almost any other type of fishing. And because of the swift water and the deep current, uh, and the strong currents and deep water we're fishing in, it takes a little while to really get used to just hitting the fish that way. It's a deadly technique, if you learn, but I don't care how many books you read, I don't care how many times you might go to one of my lectures where I have visuals and show people what we're doing. You have to develop a feel. You have to get oh, a feel. I'm going to give you. A, I'm going to give you a perfect example. Right, this is 1988. It was before I even started uh -huh. Lower East. I had a. Okay. A 25 Grady, which I kept over in Captree. And a friend of mine, his father was like a legend, right? His name is Donner Bansky. Okay. And this guy was literally a legend, right? So he tells me, all right, I'm going to be out there. He goes, I'm going to pick you up some eels. He goes, you just follow me and watch what I'm, you know, I'm going to, 
go over a piece and I'm going to tell you when to crank up. Right. So now I had a fish find back then, but nothing like we have today. So we make like three, four drifts. He pulls up. So he gets me on the radio. He goes, pull up. So I pull up. So he goes, how you doing? I go, I haven't had a bite. He goes, you what? I go, I haven't had one single bite. He goes, you're using eels. I go, I'm the whole setup, everything you told me what to do. I feel the bite cranking up. And so he goes, all right, well, take these. And he's got like two 30-pounders in the boat, right? So I'm like, Don, I go, Don, I don't want you fish. I go, I'm going to catch my own. He goes, all right, you're going to starve tonight. And you know what? He was right. I didn't catch a fish. Next trip, I went on the boat with him. And I caught one of my bigger fish in my life. It was 42 pounds. So, um, you know, but it was all about watching him and seeing just, I just wasn't, I was cranking too fast or uh, I was moving the rod down. I didn't realize it at the same time, Uh, something like that, whatever it was. But uh, he he would catch like every time we hit that freaking hump. Now, this was a time Uh um, when... You really, you couldn't keep anything right on the 36 inches, but he was paid by DEC to uh, keep fish of all size. So he was, so DEC could study the fish. He was one of those guys that were giving him, you know, like three, four bucks a pound back then. And, uh, you know, he's deceased since he's, he went out, uh, he was a captain until he was like 82 years old. So, uh, down in Florida, oh, God did everything he loved, but he was, uh, he was one of the greats, but that's an example. The guy told me what to yeah. do, made the rigs. I tied everything. Yeah. I did everything exactly the yeah. same. I didn't get one bite. Yeah. I didn't even feel it. But, uh, after that, that's true. I mean, if, if we have a minute or two, I, I, I'll tell you a little bit about bass fishing and got in the race. And it's, it's very interesting because, look, you're dealing with very swift currents, as I said before. And in particular, that particular species, you know, we like to fish near the big moons. We like to fish the full moon and the new moon periods where the tide's really cranking. In my mind, the ideal drift when we're fishing for bass is the boat's going to be moving between two and four knots. And you got to have the wind and the tide moving in the same direction. That's really important so that your drift is prevented to move it properly. Right. When that rig is moving along at the bottom at three to four knots, with the way we're fishing these three-way rigs, which basically is a 5-0 three-way swivel, and it's got to be a big 5-0 like that because you use something small that's going to bend out under the weight of some of these big fish. And we're using, a, uh, on that three-way swivel, one, line, one end goes to the main line, usually about 30-pound braid. The other end goes to 12 inches worth of 20-pound mono for your sinker, so it'll break off if you hit the bottom and save the rest of your rig. And then you're going to use anywhere between a four and a six-foot, 60-pound leader. It could be fluorocarbon. It could be mono. I don't see a huge big difference there. But you want a strong enough leader to be abrasion resistant. And only a one-and-a-half-ounce jig. Only one and a half ounce bucktail jig, and on top of that, of course, you're going to put either what used to use pork rind. Now we use with the fat cows and you know that kind of stuff. Right. But uh, when you drop that rig down to the bottom, and you're using a very large sinker, using usually a 10 to 12, 14, 16 ounce sinker in a real strong running tide. When you drop that rig down to the bottom, you bring it up two or three turns. You just hold it. Because we're drifting from deep water towards the shallow water, the rip is where the rip is forming. You know, you're actually coming closer and closer to the bottom all the time, and you got to feel that sinker. When that sinker bounces across the bottom, it, it could be the bottom or it could be a fish striking it. You got to hit really hard 
strike really hard and bring it up another two or three turns. Either you got to fish or you want to pull the, the rig away from the bottom where you're going to snag and lose your rig and lose time and try to re-rig again. Well, being able to feel that sinker touch the bottom, even though the bottom is getting shallow, even though we're going from maybe 100 or 120 feet up to maybe 40 or 30 feet at the top of the, of the shelf, right. it's very, very hard because the tide is running so strong you got to crank you like hell. feel it. Yeah. You've got to crank like hell. Well, I find that once you get more than 45 degrees scope on the line, you got to come up and start all over again. You just right, 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 right. Sometimes you can make it work by dropping back. But what happens then when you start dropping back, with uh, even with a 12 or 16-ounce sinker, when the line is scoped out so far, that 12 to 16-ounce sinker, when it hits the bottom the second time and the third time when you drop them back to get the rig in position to be only two or three feet off the bottom, all of a sudden, it feels like a four-ounce sinker or a two-ounce. You can barely feel it touch the bottom. And that's where people have a hard time getting used to that type of bass fishing because they don't realize that they, you know, scoped out so far that when they drop back and try to hit the bottom, they never feel it. And then, you know, they'll, they'll run out the whole school and all of a sudden, oh. wow, what happened here? So oh. that's a feel that really takes time. And guy. the other thing that's interesting is that, yeah, it's true. And then even when the fish bite, it's such a tiny little peck. You'd be amazed at how a 30-pound bass can hit that little bucktail, and you wouldn't know that it was a bass versus, you know, the rig's just hitting the bottom. Right. Well, you have to, that's, again, putting in your time, you know, the difference. And, and, you know, you're watching the screen, you're cranking, you're trying not to bang the bottom, and that makes the whole difference. People don't realize they could be right next to you and just allowing a thing to just bounce on the bottom and... They never get a fish, and you can get one every drift. And uh, a lot exactly. of people don't. Exactly. A lot of folks don't get that. But again, look, it takes time. You got to put in your time. Um, it's so much more about spots and spot burning and things like that. It's uh, yeah, it is. It's and more you, about you can, everything. Yeah, like you, yeah, you can see guys running over the same drifts, and one, some guys are catching them one after another, and the other guys are coming up empty almost every time. every time. Exactly. There is a lot of technique. Lot of technique involved, and a lot of other fine points too. I mean, just on the striped bass for a second, since we were talking a little bit about it, for years and years I used the hot lips, right, the, the smiling bill type bucktail, right. And then in the last several years, what I've been noticing is that I think it's because of the change in the bait that's in the water. I mean, again, thanks to efforts by guys like yourself that have gotten you know the bunker stuff to be protected a little bit more, and there's more bunker in the water. I changed the shape of my bucktail, and I went to this kind of rounded head, not a round ball. But a rounded head, almost like a like a, a bullet type head, mm-hmm. and it's unbelievable how much of a difference it made. I had trips where I had guys using the rounded head ones and the traditional smiling bills. The rounded head ones were out fishing the other guys five and six to one. Wow! Just same exact jig, inch ounce, ounce and a half jig, and five or six to one on the round. Yeah, again, anglers so, need to understand they got to change things out. If something's not working, yeah. just switch things out. And uh, that's a good tip there. You've given us a lot of them, uh, Cap. So yep. l- let me ask you this. So if uh, people want to charter the boat, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Okay, there's uh, two good ways to reach me. One would be on my cell phone. The cell phone is 516-317-5423. Or my email address is this is a surprise. Uh, race Rock. <laughs> race <Okay>. Rock 166. <laughs> race Rock 166 at AOL.com. 
Those okay. are the two best ways to reach me. I mean, I do have a website. You can look us up on, on www.captainstablecharters.com. So all lowercase, okay, no spaces between them. I think all of that information it can be found on the New York Angler site as well, Georgia, if uh, people look for me. All and, right, that, uh, I'll be at the Ward Melville show. So oh, okay, guys, great. Are you be a Ward Melville? Yes, I mean, I'm trying to get somebody to man the booth. I don't think I'm going to be around, okay. man. I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to okay. stop at the Federation show um, okay. over the weekend. So say hello to everybody. Um, but again, yeah, I'm busy this weekend. I'm going to wind up missing that one, unfortunately, this year. But I will talk with Joe Paradiso, and, and I think next year I'll definitely be participating with them all. Yeah, the, they're, uh, you know, I, I, I tell you what, uh, I spoke with Joe. I interviewed him last week, I think it was. And uh, right. he, you know, he seems like a real common sense guy. And that's what you need yeah. is common sense. You can't, uh, you can't be a crazy, crazy nut anymore. Those days are gone. Yeah. So, um, oh, yeah, it's true. and I know he's a great guy cause we have the same exact boat. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, Nothing we'll what else to, to say. We'll have 28 albums. Yeah. Right, that's great. Well, listen, Kat, thanks again. It's great. Uh, great speaking with you. Thanks for everything you do on New York I mean, you know, your additions, uh, are always appreciated. And, uh, thanks. Again. I hope they help him. Yeah. We, we're all looking forward to May and trying to get a bunch more trips in, post a lot more fun pictures and give people a few tips wherever possible. Yeah, uh, folks listening, better book now because things happen soon. Yeah, they go fast. I do run some specials for the first month of the year from May into early June So because the fishing's all closed. We don't have big fuel bills then. And well, that's uh, throughout great. the year, we'll, uh, we, put, we put together split charters too. If, if you only got a couple of guys, so don't worry about not having a full complement. Okay. Oh, that's great. Cap, thanks again. We're going to have to okay, uh, pleasure, do this George. again during the season. I appreciate everything. That wraps up another episode of the New York Fishing Podcast. I know we've got uh, some uncharted waters ahead, no pun intended. But I still firmly believe that we should get out, get in that spot that nobody knows where you are. Uh, keep your social distance. Make a few casts. It's a great time to get your tackle ready. It's a great time to get your boat ready, and it's just a great time to, I mean, take advantage of this time that you have to spend with your family. I wish you all the best out there. Please, everyone stay safe. I'd like to thank all of our first responders, and in this case, I really would like to thank our medical professionals, uh, my sister-in-law is out there right now. Uh, you know, in White Plains Hospital, kind of uh, right there, ground zero. And I'd like to give a shout out to her and all of the people uh, in the medical field that are out there helping, as well as all first responders, many of which have yet to be tested. But that's another whole, whole nother story. But you know, it's time we as Americans and we as anglers stick together, not point the finger, try and get out, do what we can. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to get some bait and tackle if we need it. I hear that a lot of stores are adjusting to your call ahead and they will walk your item out the door. So do what you can to help your fellow neighbor, your fellow citizen. Obviously, there's much more important things going on in the world right now than fishing. But 
fishing can help you ease your mind. And even if it's just a little while in these trying times, I do believe that that's very important. So until next time, please stop by NewYorkAngler.com and check out what your fellow anglers have to say. Also, please subscribe to this podcast. We will be updating it quite often. And please support your local tackle shop, your local charter boat, and your local party boat whenever you get that chance. Again, we're all in it together. We all love fishing. We all love being out on the water or near the water. So let's all do what we can to help one another as we battle through this crisis. Thanks again. Please give me a five-star rating. Subscribe and visit NewYorkAngler.com. I wish you all the very best and the very best of health. I'd also like to take one moment to mention that today is my brother's birthday. He would have been 62 today. It's hard to believe that he and I missed all of this time together. Miss you, bro. And once again, everyone stay safe. Thank you for listening to the New York Angler Podcast. You can find more on fishing New York waters at nyangler.com, your secret spot online.